Welcome to the Vine Life Podcast. We're a church in Manchester who love Jesus, each other, and our city. Catch up on this week's message and more. Um, well, good morning. My name's Emma. This is installment three uh, of our series, The Kingdom of Heaven is Like. And we're thinking about the parables, as that intro video so wonderfully described, we're thinking about the parables in light of what is Jesus saying about the kingdom and the kingdom of heaven. So before we get going with our next parable, which Boosie, I'm going to be circling back round to what a lot of what you shared just before. Thank you for that. Um, but we, uh, before, we, before we look in our, our next parable, let's just have a bit of a quick summary of some of the kind of key ideas that we've looked at so far from John and Ralph uh, in the series so far. And um, I'm actually going to go to N.T. Wright, who is a theologian that some of you uh, may be familiar with, because he, um, and he's written a wonderful book called Simply Jesus. And he has a sentence in it that actually really captures well what we're trying to go for in this series. And he wrote this. It's going to come on from the screen. Whatever the parables are, they are not earthly stories with heavenly meaning. Rather, they are expressions of Jesus' shocking announcement that God's kingdom was arriving on earth as in heaven. And as we read the parables, we find that they often created more questions than answers. And for those that truly heard, they revealed new ways to think about God's kingdom here on earth. And these new ways were surprising and unexpected. Um, it was a kingdom that was being brought in about, about in a way that few anticipated. And ways um, of a kingdom that revealed this upside-down value system where ideas around forgiveness or wealth or social status were being reshaped and reformed. And in that reshaping, Jesus used his parables to invite a decision. In which kingdom are we going to live? And I wonder if we have a tendency, as modern readers of, of Jesus' parables, to simply ask, how is this parable about me and my relationship with God? And that's not unhelpful. That's an important um, level of interpretation. But what we're trying to do in this series is also ask ourselves, how is this parable about Jesus? You can keep going, Damien. Should be a couple of questions coming. How is this parable about Jesus and his announcement of God's kingdom? That's the second question we're trying to go for in this series, trying to explore the parables from that perspective. Because when we ask that question, we begin to understand the parables within the context of the bigger narrative weaving its way through the whole biblical story of God's redemptive plan to restore his sons and daughters, to restore us as image bearers who are created to co-rule and reign with him in this kingdom. So with that question, we begin to see the new way that Jesus is inviting us into. So we're going to be turning to Luke 15. It's a parable that is probably Jesus' most well-known. It's likely familiar to you. It's already something God is speaking to us about this morning. And as we hear it, let's be listeners who are asking ourselves, what does this tell us about Jesus and the kingdom of heaven and be ready to have our view of reality shaped by the words of Jesus. So, what's our context then as we go to chapter 15? If you've got your Bibles, please open up. 
And let's set the scene. Because actually, what's happening, the context Jesus is telling this parable, is already going to give us a sense of what he's trying to communicate through it. And we're told that tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to Jesus. So we've got these two groups already, tax collectors. They were a despised group because they were colluding with the Roman occupiers, in essence. Sinners. This was uh, quite a broad term that the religious elite and religious leaders used to kind of describe a group of people that they viewed as being ignorant to the law and therefore not abiding it. So we've got tax collectors, sinners. So both of those groups, according to the religious elite, should be ostracized. Don't have anything to do with them as keepers of the Torah. So as Jesus was having these groups of people draw near, that was a problem for them. And we're told that it prompted some muttering and grumbling from the scribes and the Pharisees. He was having people draw near that they thought he should be steering well clear of. And so in response, Jesus tells a set of three lost and found parables. You are likely familiar with all three, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And there's some repeated patterns between the three, but we're going to focus in on the lost son. And before we read it, quick shout out. I think uh, there might be a picture on the screen as well of this book. Henry Nowen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. Um, it's really helped me in preparation for today. And everything that I touch on is more fully explored in here. Please read it. It's wonderful. If you haven't already, it's really worth it. So let's read. He also said... This is Jesus speaking. He's already told two parables. He's speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. He also said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have had more than enough food to eat, and here I am dying of hunger? I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Now the older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Very familiar, I would imagine, to most of you. Let's be hearers this morning. Let's try and unpick what Jesus is communicating in this. On its largest scale of meaning, Jesus is activating the wider biblical narrative arc as he tells this parable. So let's just try and reduce it down to its bare bones of what, of what this parable is about. We have an Israelite son who squanders the generous inheritance of his father, and it's an inheritance his father does want to give him in good time, but the son wants it now. The son exiles himself to a distant land, and he finds himself a slave. It's a self-inflicted exile. It's then that he comes to his senses of realizing his poor decision-making. But the son now sees himself as unworthy and outside the bounds of his father's love. But this father is more forgiving and more compassionate and more loving than he could ever imagine. That's the essence of the story. And that is a clear callback to the prophets like Hosea, who described the story of Israel in very similar terms and in very similar language. So in this parable, the nation of Israel is being invited back into the generosity of God to experience the life of God's kingdom. So on this kind of meta-narrative, this big story of meaning, Jesus is talking to about an entire nation. But there's other layers of meaning. Remember the context is he's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees in the face of their complaint. So Jesus is revealing something more specific of what this kingdom is like and who gets to participate, which is challenging their judgment, is challenging their worldview, it's challenging the view of reality of the kingdom of God that they are assuming. And there's further layers still, isn't there, where we can identify with the characters on a personal level, as, as Boosie has so beautifully done this morning, and consider what it means for our own selves, for our own relationship with the Father, and for our own relationship with other people. So we're going to try and dip in out of these different layers of meaning as we have a focus on each of the characters in turn. We've got a little graphic coming. It's just going to help us plant in the story of which character we're focusing on. So the younger brother, first of all. Click again, Damien. There we go. Here we are. It's really easy to focus on, on the tender uh, and joy-filled return of the lost son without really exploring and considering the depths of what it means for him to have left in the first place. The son's request for his inheritance and his, his manner of leaving was in essence him wishing his father dead. He's rejecting the home in which he was raised and nurtured. He's rejecting the relationship with his father and family. He's rejecting the future that those relationships would have held. And the fact he leaves for a distant country speaks of this drastic cutting off um, from the, his way of living, the way of thinking, the way of behaving that would have been handed down from generation to generation. How painful for those that he leaves behind as he severs the relationship. And we're told that he squanders his inheritance on foolish living. The famine strikes, he's got nothing, 
Survival comes by way of becoming a pig feeder. He's hungry and alone and no one will help him. Such a desperate state. And it's in that state that he comes to his senses. It's the loss of everything that brought him to the bottom line of his identity. Because when he found himself desiring to be treated like one of the pigs, an unclean animal, according to the Torah, he remembered that he is not an animal. He is a son of his father. And that realization becomes the basis for his decision to live instead of die. And so he decides to return. And he knows he's blown it. He's not expecting to be restored. But in his father's house, at least he can have the possibility of his basic needs being met. He's clinging on to the scraps of his sonship here and fully expecting that the father to whom he's returning is going to be demanding an explanation. The love is conditional. His failings are great. He has not yet encountered a grace that's greater. Belief in total and absolute forgiveness is not within his realm of thinking. And so he prepares a speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. And there is repentance in that speech. Can you hear it? But it's not repentance in the light of his father's immense love. It's repentance within the confines of his own human understanding that offers the possibility that the hope, with the hope that his father may just offer him a bit of charity. So let's dip into then one of our layers of meaning. We're actually going to go straight to thinking about what could this mean for us before we go back into our context biblically. Have we found ourselves in a rebellion moment? Will we again? Maybe we're in one right now. We may not have a story of such defiance, although maybe we do. But I think, um, and I wonder, are there more subtle ways that we can leave the home for more distant lands? A spiritual leaving, if you like, where we go and explore opportunities, life, relationships in a way where we're disconnected and independent from our father. I'm the lost son every time I look for unconditional love in places that can't be found. That's when we're the lost son. However that might look, internally or externally. And in our self-inflicted exile, Perhaps we have moments, too, of clinging on to our identity. And perhaps we also prepare a speech, trying to find a way back home again, hoping that our repentance justifies us enough that we can stand in our father's house again, somewhere in the shadows, where we're tolerated but without relationship, all too aware of our own weakness, our own poor choices, and our own rebellion. Have you ever felt like that? Don't assume that you won't again. But in this parable, Jesus points to the type of father that we encounter in our ugliest, messiest moments where we're stinking with an overgrown beard, as Boosie so wonderfully illustrated for us in worship. We're in our rags. There is nothing beautiful about us for us to offer. 
in that moment, we encounter a father who exhibits a grace which is beyond reason and beyond understanding. And it is an unconditional love which cannot be earned. It isn't deserved, no matter our behavior, whether good or bad. Like we are loved independently of any mess or failure, but we are also loved independently from any acclaim or accomplishment. Jesus says this, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. We don't even get to deliver our prepared speech. Our own efforts to justify and make amends aren't even heard. We're treated better than we deserve and better than we could imagine, not because of our own efforts, but because of his love and his compassion and his grace. In our stinking mess, we are embraced by a father who is actively looking for us in the waiting and we are clothed with his, with his compassion. And I wonder whether one of the greatest challenges of spiritual life, it is my greatest challenge right now, which means I've had a tussle for this morning in terms of even talking about this, but whether one of the greatest challenges in our spiritual life is to receive God's forgiveness in the point of our mess, especially if it's mess we've chosen. That's really hard. When we're so confronted by our own choices and so confronted by our own actions and so confronted by where we've fallen short, that actually his unconditional grace, which restores us to the full dignity of our sonship or daughtership, I'm going to use sonship, it's quicker, but I mean all of us, where we're restored to the full dignity of our sonship, it can feel so undeserved that it's almost easier to keep it far away. It's almost easier to try and persuade God that actually our darkness is too great to overcome. And actually his cross isn't enough. And we need to be kept separate. Make me like one of your hired servants. Is that ever actually what we believe? It's a challenge. It's a challenge I'm walking in right now. And I wonder whether there are maybe one or two of you that are perhaps experiencing that challenge too, and the thing for you to know this morning is, it's not just you. <laughs> Henry Nowen says this, as we step into that same embrace between the father and his son, we're confronted with the fact that truly accepting love, forgiveness and healing for ourselves is often much harder than giving it. It's the place beyond earning, beyond deserving, and beyond rewarding, it's the place of surrender and complete trust. We cannot earn this love. We do not deserve this love, and we cannot earn it. The way we receive it is through surrender and complete trust. Not a trust in ourselves not a trust in our own choices or behavior or our own capacity to, to do good and be good. There is no place for self-sufficiency or self-righteousness in this kingdom. So what does this tell us then about the kingdom of heaven? Jesus is telling this parable 
because he's challenging existing value systems. There is a leveling effect of this forgiveness on the community that Jesus was creating, precisely because it was nothing about self-righteousness. And it's everything to do with his love. There is no way to earn a place in the kingdom of heaven. And this is how Israel's religious elite and leaders should have seen their own story as the younger son. But instead, they took for granted the gift of God and they held it back from those they deemed less worthy than themselves. And we see that Jesus actually identifies them as a different character within the parable, as the elder brother is introduced. There he is. He's not at this scene. He doesn't see the embrace between father and son. He's remained at the home, and we're told that he's out in the field, presumably stewarding the estate rather than squandering it. But he hears a celebration, and he returns. This is what Jesus said. The elder brother became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I've been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. When we listen carefully to those words with which the elder son attacks his father, they are self-righteous, aren't they? Self-pitying, jealous words. There is a deeper complaint going on. And it is the complaint that comes from a heart that believes it's never received what it was due. That's what's going on for him. It's a heart that's filled with resentment and that that resentment prevents him from sharing in his father's joy and prevents him from joining in the celebration. So the barrier for this son is not his rebellion. It's not his waywardness or wrongdoing. The barrier is his pride in his own moral record. I've never disobeyed you. And his favorable comparison between his own behavior and his younger brothers, that son of yours. Like, do you hear that language, that relational separation that he's putting in? It betrays a feeling of superiority, which means that the forgiveness and restoration of his younger brother, instead of provoking joy, provokes anger. So let's tap into our layers of meaning. Jesus is confronting the Pharisees and the scribes not only with the return of the lost son, which is who they should have identified with, but also with the resentful elder son, speaking indirectly into their lens of who they believe should and shouldn't be in the kingdom. God's arms of forgiveness are there to embrace all. For us, that's a heartwarming message, isn't it? But it wasn't for them. And that wasn't Jesus's purpose. His purpose was to shatter their categories and invite them to make a decision. Now, notice that Jesus never tells us in this parable about the elder brother's final decision. We don't know whether he ever found himself willing to be found. We don't know whether he joined the celebration. And we don't know whether he kept himself separated. Because there is a decision that the, the religious leaders are being invited to here. How will they respond to the upside-down value system of the kingdom where sinners are part of it? 
and God's love is for them too. It seems with grumbling and complaining, it seems they didn't want to participate in the party with those they deemed less worthy without realizing that they were just as lost. And just as the resentful son felt he was owed something by his father, the Pharisees thought that obedience to law, to the law, their good behavior is what, what earned them a place in the kingdom and what kept others out. So as we think about how that speaks to us, we're going uh, to turn to Tim Keller. He's written a, a short book called The Prodigal God. I'd also recommend that one. And he says this, if, like the elder brother, we believe that God ought to bless us and help us because we have worked hard to obey him and be a good person, then Jesus may be our helper. He may be our example. He may even be our inspiration, but he's not our savior. We're serving as our own savior. That's a bit of a punch in the gut, isn't it? We are saved by grace and by grace alone. It's undeserved, it's unearned, it's unmerited. There is a leveling effect of this forgiveness on the people of the kingdom of heaven. And from whom does this forgiveness come? Let's turn to our final character, the father. The parable might be titled The Lost Son, but really it's about two lost sons. And it's about the father's love. It's not a parable that separates the two brothers into the good and the wicked. It's not how we're meant to understand this. They are both lost. They are both needing to turn back and face their father. They both encounter a father's love, which cannot be earned based on any measure of deservedness. The joy at the return of the younger son in no way means that the elder son was any less loved or any less appreciated or any less favored. The father does not compare them. He goes out to meet them both. He loves them both with a complete love, which is a love according to their individual journeys. He wants both at his table. He wants both to participate in his joy. For the younger son, we see that not only does the father forgive him without asking questions and joyfully welcomes him home, but there is also this immediate restoration to sonship as he gives him the best cloak, sandals for his feet, a ring for his finger, all signs that his, he has got restored standing in the family again. For the elder son, the father goes out to meet him too. He pleads with him. He listens to his elder son's complaint and pain. He reassures him of his sonship. You are always with me and everything I have is yours. He desperately wants his elder son to join in the celebration too. And he tries to reconnect that relationship together. Your brother, not that son of yours, your brother. In all three parables which Jesus tells in response to this complaint and grumbling from the scribes and the Pharisees, and the question of why he sits with sinners and tax collectors and eats with them, he puts the emphasis on God's initiative every time. God is the shepherd who goes looking for the sheep. God is the woman who sweeps her house and searches for the lost coin. 
God is the father who watches and waits for his children, runs out to meet them, embrace them, pleads with them where needed and urges them to come home. And in all three parables, there is an invitation to rejoice. God rejoices when what's lost is found. From God's perspective, one act of repentance, one gesture of love and generosity, one moment of forgiveness, one turning of a heart towards him in the depths of the darkness of the soul. It fills the heavens with sounds of divine joy. The invitation is, scribes and Pharisees, are you going to join in that celebration? Will we? Will we join in that celebration? Let's bring this together. Even more important, I think, than the context of um, the parable and who Jesus is speaking to is the fact that it's Jesus that's telling it. Jesus is the son of the father and Jesus shows us what true sonship is. He gives such a vivid account here of, of human lostness, doesn't he? But let's not be mistaken into thinking that this love which cannot be earned means that it doesn't cost. In the parable, it would have cost the father greatly to receive and embrace his son the way that he did. His dignity was compromised, his social standing damaged, as he risked the ridicule of his whole community in taking on the shame and humiliation of his younger son and restoring him. Jesus is the one who is willing to separate himself from the father, pay the cost for all of humanity's forgiveness and restoration to being sons and daughters, and he celebrates as each one comes home. He's the younger son without being rebellious, and he's the elder brother without being resentful. It's easy for us to identify with the two sons, I think, isn't it? Their outer and inner waywardness is so human and so profoundly understandable. But when it comes to the kingdom, when it comes to us being co-heirs with Jesus, as we partner in its rule and reign with him, the question is less about our similarity to one or other brother. We've missed it if that's where we stop. The question is, do we want to become like the father? Because that's the invitation that we have, is being his co-heirs and rulers. That's who Jesus has made a way for us to become like. As we behold him, we become like him. So do I want to be the one who is not just forgiven, as wonderful as that is, but also forgive? Do I want to be the one who is not just welcomed home, as wonderful as that is, but also the one who welcomes home? Do I want to be the one who not just receives compassion, as wonderful as that is, but offer it too? Because this parable is not only about the love of a father. This parable is about how we treat one another and how we display that kingdom to one another. Earlier on in Luke's gospel, Jesus says, be compassionate as your father is compassionate. The kingdom of heaven has a king whose character is marked by extravagant compassion, undeserved grace, boundless love, and total forgiveness. That's our king. Can we be like him too? Can we be like his hands that console, that heal, that forgive, and that offer a celebration 
because that's what it looks like to rule and reign with Christ, to live out this divine compassion in our daily life and celebrate every moment that we see the kingdom of heaven being at hand, whether that's in our own life or in the lives of those around us. That's, I think, the invitation for us this morning. So if you can, would you stand with me? And I'd really like us, before Susie comes back up, to just pray together. And I'd like to pray over you. And if you feel comfortable and able, um, it would be great if you could uh, just pop, if ask them first, just pop a hand on someone's shoulder. And I'd like us to pray that as a church, as this church community, we would find out a little bit more what it is to be like the Father. God, I thank you that such a strong message of your love for us has weaved its way through this morning. And God, we look to you now and we look at you face to face and say, Jesus, thank you for making a way. Thank you for showing us what it is to be a son and to be a daughter. And thank you for making a way for us to be restored to our true place as your children, God. And God, as we look to you, we say, transform us, change us, sanctify us so that we become your hands of compassion. We become your hands of forgiveness. We become the hands that welcome home. Father God, we want to be like you. Jesus is described as being the perfect imprint of your nature and your character. And we want to be on that journey where we reflect your, your character and your nature. Help us to have hearts that are soft and able to be molded and shaped so that we see those around us with Father's eyes. Hope you enjoyed today's message. If you want to find out more, head to our website, findlife.co.uk, or follow us on Instagram. God bless, and see you soon.